my, um, my first days of school that are most memorable um, are the ones where I was uh, transitioning into something new. I, um, I don't remember kindergarten really, but I, uh, I remember stepping into junior high, and I remember um, driving down the hill to my, my first university days, and I remember my introduction to high school. My high school was a three-year high school, and uh, the very floor, as you walked in, the very floor was this tile mosaic of our mascot, which I think I've told you before is a purple kangaroo. Uh, go, go Kangs. And not Go Roos. Don't say Go Roos. Go Kangs. And uh, there was this thing where if, um, if you stepped on the tile mosaic, you had to uh, kiss it. And so upperclassmen was sort of on the first day of school not knowing this rule, would stand and wait for some unbeknown sophomore, otherwise known as Joey's, um, <laughs> to step on the seal. And thankfully, I didn't, but I certainly watched a number of people uh, take a knee. So, um, you know, I, some, probably some of my most memorable ones are actually related to my own children. And uh, we have a high school senior this year, and I think um, watching each of our children uh, head off to that next thing will also be uh, memorable and maybe a little panicky and exciting and all of that at the same time. Although, praise the Lord, uh, for us, uh, not yet. We're excited for her and also not yet. So um, we are starting this tiny little series that we just have called Anchor, seeking to understand what are the various things that um, can, can anchor us in our faith regardless or even maybe because of what's happening around us. And three weeks from now, we'll start what will be a big push for us throughout the entire school year, this, this big emphasis on us seeking to know and embrace and live the scriptures together. You heard um, Jenny talk about this, uh, even this small group study we're doing in this fall called Shaped by Scripture. And what we're seeking to do starting the Sunday after Labor Day is over 12 weeks, go over the entire narrative arc of the Bible in 12 weeks, which is a lot to cover, which is why we're not, we've decided to use this book to help us. If any of you, I'm telling you right now, I'd love for all of you to read the book and to be in these studies and to spend some time understanding the, the whole story of the Bible. But if any, I mean, we're not doing the whole thing because it turns out reading the whole Bible in 12 weeks is rough. But if you do it, I will buy you your favorite brewed beverage. <laughs> Coffee or otherwise. Uh, and you just got to be uh, honest about it. And I'll know because you'll look like bleary-eyed and exhausted um, by trying to get it all done in 12 weeks. Before we get to that, however, we wanted to spend a little bit of time seeking to understand why is this idea of us gathering in small groups around God's Word, why is it so important? So even before we get to that, we just wanted to talk about this simple, small little idea that th these, three, three, pardon me, these three things turn out to be an anchor for us. Christ, Scripture, life together. This is the, the bedrock way we can continue to grow and deepen and be connected to our faith. Focus on Christ as He's revealed in Scripture as we live Him together. Christ, 
Scripture together. So we'll be spending just the next three weeks on those, um, on those little items because we are so eager for people to actually know and understand who Jesus Christ is and, and to grow up in him by knowing the actual whole story. So let's spend a little bit of time praying together, shall we? And uh, we will uh, dive right into this text today from the book of Hebrews. Let's pray. Lord, you've brought us together. Here we are. A totally complete, unique gathering of people that will never be duplicated. For reasons that only you know, each and every single one of us has, has had our hearts tugged to this place right now. You've not cared about our circumstances, whether we've had a good week or a bad week or somewhere in between. You have simply brought us here to sing your praises and to pray before you and to hear from your word. So Lord, would you teach us and instruct us now? Would you deposit the hope of the gospel deep in our hearts and minds and imaginations? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, rock, and redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so why don't we uh, together turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews uh, is a letter written to a small little church, primarily made up of Hebrews. As far as we can tell, we don't actually know a lot about this church or the author. But why don't we encourage you, as we're going through this big emphasis on really knowing the Word together in a vibrant way, why don't you open up your Bibles, or maybe the one in front of you, and if you're not sure where Hebrews is, it's about that far in, okay? It's pretty far towards the back. If you got to James or Revelation or John, you've gone a little bit too far, okay? Feel free to sort of open up and, and follow along as we work our way through um, this small little passage of this much larger letter. And before I read this little section, let me see if um, I can sort of set up a little bit of context or the whole overarching theme of the book of Hebrews. As I said, it was written to, uh, as far as we can tell, a, a small little church in some town we don't know, some city we can't identify, that um, was probably made up mostly of uh, Hebrews, people who were familiar with and knew the Jewish faith. And it seems that maybe they uh, can tell, or maybe they are already in the middle of what feels like a, a fresh wave of hardship because of following Jesus. Life is um, maybe going to be filled with some persecution coming up. There are some things that are going to be difficult about um, what it's going to mean for this church to stay together, to stay together. And so the writer of this letter to this tiny little church says, look, what we want you to know is this, is Jesus Christ is supreme. His promises will stand for all time. You can rest on those promises, and you can let your life look more and more like Jesus. Jesus is supreme. You can rest your life on his promises and let your life look more and more like him. So with that tiny little summary of a 13-chapter uh, letter, Let's read just these uh, six or seven little verses, starting at Hebrews 6, verses 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, 
He swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received that what was, what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves. So let me stop there for a second. Common practice to this day, but certainly uh, in, in older days, in ancient days, you would swear by um, your master if you were a slave. You would swear by uh, the king or by Caesar or someone else who was above you saying, my promise is connected to their character. And God doesn't have anyone else greater than him. So he swore, made his own promise based on his own character and his own promise of an oath. So people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and then puts an end to all the arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs, um, very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, his character and his promise, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I wonder how you think of yourself. It's not uncommon for people to think of themselves as people who are on some sort of a journey. And so we actually see it here when this writer talks about, uses this one little phrase here, this highlighted phrase. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. He's talking about us, and he's, he's referencing stories from the Old Testament that we might not instantly jump to mind for us. Abraham was um, God's chosen, and he was living in a city. He seemed to be quite content and quite successful and all those things. And, and God called him out of that to sort of flee that situation and, and go to this unknown land he knew nothing about that was called Canaan. Fast forward a couple, several hundred years, all of a sudden now we find um, that same line of people from Abraham all the way to the Jewish people. They, they find themselves in Egypt stuck and caught in slavery. And Jesus calls them to, to flee their current circumstances to, to a land they can't quite possibly imagine yet. To know the promise of God's freedom. Fast forward a couple hundred more years than that, maybe even a couple thousand years. Jesus himself walking the earth, God in the flesh, comes up to people, especially um, fishermen, and he said to them, follow me. Follow me. Leave your current life, and I will make you fishers of people. So in this same way, this Hebrew writer is saying, we're part of that group. We're part of the ones who have put themselves in circumstances that are unsure, like Abraham. 
who receives this promise and lives his life for quite a long time in this promise before he actually sees the promise revealed. We're in that same line of um, those Israelites who left slavery to step into freedom. We're like those disciples who've been invited to, to leave what's easy and simple about our life and to find ourselves wandering with Jesus Christ to a land that is still unknown. Do you feel like sometimes you're on a journey you can't quite tell where it ends? The writer of Hebrews knows that. He knows that we're all living in these circumstances that while we can look behind as Abraham has and look at all the promises that are good and and beautiful and how faithful God is, in the current moment it's sometimes very hard to tell. So then he goes on and he says this, here's the thing I want you to know in the midst of the fact that you have, you found yourself fleeing, you found yourself on a journey, you find yourself being called out of your circumstance of comfort. He says this, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm, and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And the image is that we sort of find ourselves in some sort of circumstance where we're in a storm. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Because we've thrown out this anchor, but we haven't actually thrown it downward into the ground. Because it turns out, in this metaphor, we know what happens to things that we've sort of thrown out anchors that like just plop down on the ground. Now this anchor has actually sort of somehow got latched onto the inner place, the inner sanctum of where God is. And because he's writing to Hebrews who still have these images dominant in their mind, he. What he says is this, is Jesus is the one who is finding himself. We're tethered to Jesus, who's there in the Holy of Holies. In the temple, there was like all the rest, and then there was this tiny little room that was the, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was said to reside. And in that place, once a year, one of the priests was allowed to go and to make atonement for the people. And what we discover in the Gospels is through the work of Jesus Christ, the curtain that separated this world and access to God is ripped in two. That we now actually have access to God because of the work of Jesus Christ. That curtain's been ripped in two, it says uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. This writer is seeking to make that same sort of point using an image and a story that the Hebrews would have understood. That Jesus, who's now the best high priest of all time, he he remains there in constant contact with the God and with the Lord, and we find him connect, we find ourselves connected to him. He is our hope. Our anchor is not secured to anything here on earth, because, well, how's that going for us? You think about the various things that you sort of have thrown overboard that you hope will anchor you. You know, what are we, the number top three uh, places in the entire country when it comes to level of degrees? Right? There's a lot of smart people in this room. 
But it turns out our intelligence and that sort of effort and that sort of study will not be enough to anchor us to the storms that are coming. Some of us, we, um, you know, we end up um, sort of finding ourselves developing a life where it feels safe to us. I, we do this because we have a house with air conditioning and heating and a yard and a garage and a little lock you can sort of like tap a little code in and keep track of who's in and out. It turns out that uh, this stuff that we've acquired is, is actually not going to be an anchor for us in the future. It's not going to last. I have bad news for you. All that really awesome gear you have in the garage, you can't take it with you. It's not going to help. And so the writer gives us this image where instead of casting our anchor this way, we find sort of tethered to something we had no reason to expect for which we are so grateful. It's now we find ourselves tethered to Jesus Christ, who is our forerunner. He's not the only, he's the first. The kind of access that he has to God, to the Father, now we will have access to God the Father in that way for all time. He's the beginning of the parade. We'll get to be part of it. And he says, we have all of this. this is, we have an anchor for the soul that is firm and secure. Can I tell you that this image of an anchor has been one that's been really important to me personally? For about the last year, this has been a, an important anchor point for me in my own walk of faith. And what's interesting, one of the things that I've found out actually is, is it turns out it's a really dominant image theme. You can see, you find lots of, of uh, imagery and iconography that include anchors for Christian faith, which is a little surprising when you think about how seldom you actually find it in the Bible. I, I kind of assumed that this was like this dominant image, not just for me, but in the Bible itself. But do you know that in all the Bible, we just find three places where the word anchor is talked about or used directly? One of them is in the Gospel of Mark when they've crossed the Sea of Galilee and Jesus walks on water and when they get to the other side to Gennesaret, they anchor there um, before they go to shore. Another is at the very end of Acts chapter 27. Paul and a bunch of people who are with him on the ship, they find themselves in this awful storm and they, they find themselves throwing everything they can over as an anchor to try to keep them from um, having their ship fall apart. And then there's this, this passage right here, that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So with only those three Bible passages, kind of surprising that uh, down in the catacombs of Rome, we see anchors everywhere. Priscilla, who's said to be among the very uh, first martyrs for the faith, around her uh, burial spot, there are 60, 60 etched anchors into the rocks around her burial spot. 
even though there are only three of these little pictures, it, it's, it's, it's this really dominant metaphor. Partially, it was so dominant because you could embed a cross in it. It was a way for you to mark out your faith and say something important about yourself and maybe for a little while hide it maybe a little bit from the authorities. But second, friends, it was such a dominant picture and has been so important to me because of what an anchor does. I don't have a lot of experience with anchors. When I was uh, in late elementary school, my, uh, my parents bought a boat to go with our Suburban. Both were like lime green. I don't know why. And uh, we would take this boat out often during the summers and we, uh, to this lake called Lake Sammamish, uh, just uh, uh, east of Seattle by about 15 or 20 miles. And we would uh, learn to water ski, and then we would water ski, and then eventually we'd kneeboard it, and we would tube. And every now, every now and then we'd decide to just stop and have a little lunch. And I don't know why, but I just always remember gorging on pretzels whenever we would stop for lunch. And when we stopped for lunch because of all the waves and the other boats and the winds and all these other things, we would uh, we'd take this little anchor that we had bought with the boat and we'd just throw it overboard, you know, to, um, to keep us there, keep us safe and not, you know, moving too close to the shore. And we'd tie it off and, and it was this little, uh, it's like had a stem and had a flat bottom with like sort of a curve like this. It was more of a weight than the way you might think of an anchor. And I remember one time, uh, I'm not sure why, but uh, my mom or my dad, they realized at times, like, whoa, we got to go. So uh, we, like, stuffed the last pretzels into our mouth, got things that I put away, started going. And people are like, we're like, yeah, I know. I'm waving. People are waving at us. And, and at first I looked back, and there's nothing there. They're like, you know, this. I'm like, we are, we're, we must be cooler than I thought. And eventually, I paused, and I, I, I caught it at just the right time. Our anchor, which we did not pull up, is like, I have no idea why this would be this way, but with how fast my dad was going, it was like a tuna. So it'd be like, and like dive back down under again, and like hit some little, and jump back up again. We're talking like, this thing was going to kill somebody, <laughs> right? So we stopped, and we fixed the anchor, but what I want you to know, friends, is that's not the kind of anchor we're talking about here. That is not the kind of anchor we're talking about here. So let's talk about actually what is it that anchors do, in the, especially in the, in the first century. It's not that different today, but what actually did anchors accomplish? What could they do for us? These anchors that have teeth. Well, friends, the first thing that anchor does is it keeps us from shipwreck. An anchor will keep us from shipwreck. Here's what we know. There will be storms in life. There are ample examples of uh, them in the Bible, just real literal storms on the sea, on the ocean, on the lake. And almost always you can find some way to, to recognize that that's actually not just a story just about the literal storm, but about actually the storms of our own lives. There's going to be hardships. Things unexpected are going to blow us around. We're going to be surprised by it. 
when that happens, what's going to keep us from getting shipwrecked? We have an anchor for our souls, firm and secure in Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not really new here anymore, but I still, I don't know why this is, I still feel new. About to just come up on the very end of my sixth year, beginning of my seventh year, uh, will be on September 9th. But even in those six years that I am here, as now as I sort of begin to look around, and I know stories, and I know circumstances, and I know things that have happened, and I know things that are happening, I'm just at awe at the storms that are represented just in this church. In the time that I have been here, we um, have seen dozens of men and women lose their spouse. Widows and widowers who find themselves in this unexpected storm where they have no idea how it is that they are now supposed to take the the next step in their life. I've watched cancer ravage bodies. I've watched people be cured. I've watched people receive remission. I've watched the pain of loss. I've seen some of us go through financial ruin in a way we never could have expected. There are people in this church where their children are in jail or addicted or both. And this storm is almost un- bearable. How are they supposed to handle this? What will it do to the next thing that they have to do? How will they survive in light of what is facing them right here in this moment? People have been flooded out. September 2013. And sometimes just from a broken, frozen pipe. People have filed for divorce lost a job, lost a child. Seemingly, they lost hope. But can I tell you, it is so remarkable what happens when we cling to Jesus Christ, who is our sure and secure anchor for the soul. The stories of what I'm thinking about, the stories that I've told you, are are stories of people who are still part of this church, who still proclaim and love the name of Jesus Christ, who still lift him up and say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. I only have life eternal because of him. He is my anchor behind the veil. There's nothing else which I can trust in quite that same way. I've watched people cling to the hope of Christ and say that it's the only thing that has kept them from a shipwrecked life. 
I've seen people hold on to Jesus Christ and say, of all the things that I might do or can do or should do, if I let go of this, the rest is rubbish. See, what an anchor does is it keeps us from shipwreck. It keeps us from moving too close to the rocks that will surely destroy. We have an anchor in Jesus Christ. So the anchor keeps us from shipwreck. It also helps us to maintain our progress. Shipwreck, uh, pardon me, an anchor also maintains our progress. Um, you know, captains of boats, sometimes they get somewhere a little too fast or the port's not ready or whatever else, and, and they're sort of faced with a decision. What, what are they going to do? Are they going to go back? It feels like maybe I don't really know exactly how this is all going to work out yet, but, but I, I, am I, what am I going to do? And what they do, friends, and you can see this like in the San Francisco Bay, you can see huge container ships, no, nowhere to go yet. They just are sitting there right in the middle of the bay or just outside, uh, out in the ocean. What are, what are they doing? They're just waiting until it's time to make progress again. See, we have this sense, I think, and sometimes this expectation that following Jesus is going to be a win all the time. We have this expectation that somehow believing that there's a God who loves us and who is seeking the best for us means that it's always going to be sunshine and roses and lollipops. But it's not always going to be that. It's not always going to be easy. And sometimes when it turns out that things are going to be a little bit hard or our circumstances have changed or we can't quite figure out how to take that thing we just learned and sort of enfold it into our faith, we decide to just give it up. We decide it must not be true. We decide to turn back. But when we grab hold of the anchor, at least we can stay put until it's time for us to make progress again. At least we can be sure and secure and firm right here until it's time for us to move again. It's not always time to move. There's a time for us to simply stay and let what's happening right now pass. It may or may not even be stormy. It often is not stormy in the San Francisco Bay. But there they sit, waiting to move forward. So an anchor keeps us from being shipwrecked, and it helps us to keep our progress. If we've made some progress in the faith, that if we're holding to Christ, we can stay there. We don't have to retreat, even if it doesn't feel like we are on the advance. Third, this, um, this is an insight that I, I gleaned from a, a, a preacher, a 19th century preacher named Charles Spurgeon, and it has meant a lot to me. An anchor works best when it is out of sight. The anchor works best when it is out of sight. It's not always visible. 
it's not always working the way necessarily that we think. Do we, do we know that it's working? In a silly way, it's sort of like an Instapot. How many, raise your hand if you know what an Instapot is or if you have one. Okay. So an Instapot is like, you know, it's like a pressure cooker on steroids. It's got like a computer and you can program it and all these things. And probably it could land on the moon by itself. But, um, you know, what it is is you put a little water in this thing usually and you put some food in it and you close the lid so the pressure stays in there. And you turn it on and voila, like baked potatoes in 14 seconds. I don't know. Like it's fast. But friends, here's the thing I want, you know, this is the thing about an Instapot. It, it doesn't work if you keep on checking. What you're going to do if you keep on checking is you're going to have face full of steam and scorch your eyeballs. And oftentimes an anchor is working best when we can't see it and we can't check for it. See, when we find ourselves in shallow waters, we find our, ourselves in circumstances that are just kind of vaguely annoying. It's, it's like, you know, it's a five-foot beach. You can look down and see the bottom. You can see if you put an anchor down at five feet, you're going to be able to see it. You can probably get out and kind of maybe handle it yourself in a certain sort of way. But when we're in deep water, when things are really deeply, truly challenging, The anchor goes beyond what we can see. The work of Christ is at work in a place beyond what you can imagine. And as I've shared, I've, I've, I've been sort of in a year where I've needed that reminder. That even though I can't see it, even though it's not super abundantly clear to me, Anchors work best when they're out of sight. They're doing their job. I need to know that. I, I need to know that my anchor is digging deep, way past the muck of what I can easily see for myself. And I imagine, just looking around the room, what I know about some of you, about the circumstances you're going through, I want you to know this. The anchor of Jesus Christ is at work. Maybe even most when you can't see it. Maybe even most when things are the most difficult. He is what is keeping us close. It's keeping us tethered keeping us connected and our lives and our souls secure and firm. That's what an anchor does, friends. Keeps us from shipwreck. It lets us hold on to our progress. And it works best when it's out of sight. Jane's going to lead us in prayer in just a few minutes, but before she leads us in this prayer, I just want you to think about some, some storm you're in the middle of right now. Some circumstance, some story could be really big, 
or it could be maybe seemingly less big, but it's your storm. I just want you to rest in this simple promise. Can we pull up that uh, Bible passage again, the 19 and 20 passage? Thank you. I'm going to read this aloud to you, and I want you to sort of just to hear the promise that the anchor is at work for you. So go ahead and think about whatever that circumstance is. Do as much as you can to sort of rip your heart open for it, okay? We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Spend some time in hope and trust that the anchor is at work, and we'll pray together in just a few minutes.